Hello and welcome to IEEE Soft Robotics Podcast. In this podcast, we are going to interview researchers from Pulse Academia and Industry about their work, thoughts, spectrum, and more beyond that. This is Marwa Edwini, and I hope you will find this podcast useful. If you would like to connect with us, simply send us, and we will be happy to hear from you. And here is my interview. Thanks. Hello and welcome to IEEE Soft Robotics Podcast. Could you please introduce yourself? Hi, I'm Professor Michael Bartlett. I'm Assistant Professor of Mechanical Engineering at Virginia Tech. Thanks so much for joining us, Professor. I would like to go back when you're a child. Do you have any memories where you're interested in science or technology as a kid? Any memories about that? Yeah, so growing up, I think what really got me interested in science and technology was probably my interest in sports. So when I was younger, I always liked to race my bikes and I, I got into to skiing. And during that process, I always found it very fascinating how if you could change a material on a bike or, or on the ski, that you could enhance the performance of whatever activity you were, you were doing. So with that kind of interest in, in materials, I, I really became drawn to this concept where if we can you know, learn about the materials, how can we actually make them better? And I think that was really the, the beginning of my interest in, in science and engineering. Yeah, that's interesting. You have already PhD and also Bachelor in Material Science. And may I ask you how you came across soft robotics? How you came across this field? Yeah, sure. So as I was kind of coming through, I, I did my, my work in, in material science. And when I went to go to graduate school, I was really interested in soft materials at that time. So I actually went into a polymer science and engineering program and got really into the mechanics and functionality of soft materials. So after a few years of working in adhesion and reversible and switchable adhesion, often inspired by the gecko, I, I kind of became interested in, in expanding that into you know, making electronics or robots that were soft. So for me, it was, this interest in in coupling you know my background in in soft materials and interfaces and mechanics and then pushing that into kind of new areas and i was always really fascinated with these you know wearable devices that you would take you know traditional electronic functionality and then make it out of all soft materials or or the same with with robots where instead of having you know, robot composed of all rigid materials, why not try to reimagine that with soft materials? Mm-hmm. Wonderful. So do you remember what is the first soft robot you built? Yeah, so the first soft robot I actually built that was a functional uh, robot would have been a robot that we called a SMARC. So this was when I was at Carnegie Mellon University as a postdoc with Carmel Majidi. And we were developing these soft thermally conductive materials. And we had been doing that with these liquid metal droplets. So we were able to get some really interesting thermal conductivity and we wanted to use that in actuation. So we ended up utilizing shape memory alloy wires, which when you pass a current through, they heat up and they can change their shape. one of the challenges is when you embed those into soft materials, the heat can accumulate and then that actuation can go away. 
So we took these soft thermally conductive materials and then embedded these shape memory alloy wires and we were able to get these bending actuators. So then working with some of the other uh, graduate students in that, in that lab, we wanted to make a swimming robot. So we took the uh, material with the SMAs and made a tail and then made this kind of soft body. So it was a shark-like uh, robot and was made out of SMAs, so we called it a SMARC. And, and that would have been the first functioning robot that we built. So maybe the question comes here about how you define soft robotics uh, from your expertise, because I think we don't have uh, maybe a specific definition how we design soft robotics, what kind of material we can use, or actuation mechanism. So how do you define soft robotics? So I think I take a, a pretty broad um, definition of, of soft robotics. And to me, it's, it's probably almost as simple as the name. So it's a robot that would be composed out of a soft material. And, you know, when you talk about soft, that can actually emerge a, a few different ways. So, you know, one way to do that is to have all soft materials. So this would be focusing on something like the elastic modulus. So the material property that defines its resistance to deformation. However, at the same time, one of the, I think, really fascinating aspects about this field is that you can also make materials effectively soft. So you can actually take a rigid material, and if you make one of its dimensions thin relative to the others, that material can then become soft. So I think, you know, the, the kind of broad definition is that the robot should be composed out of a soft material but that softness can come from either the materials or the structure on which it is built. I think this is a good point. I'm curious to ask you this question because I think that that's a question we had also in the second soft robotics debate about whether we have to consider a soft robot with hybrid design with rigid bar and soft bar as soft robot. Do you think as a community we have to make effort in understanding the material? Do you think we really understand how the material behave or the physics behind the material? And do you think we have to get rid of the rigid parts that sometimes we consider uh, in soft robotics? Well, I think that, you know, there's probably more opportunities if you can learn to utilize the rigid components with the soft components. I, I think there's a lot of good reason in, in some applications that you would want it to be completely soft. Um, but I also think that there are challenges with, with all soft materials uh, in kind of the terrestrial environment, right? It's, it's challenging to take an octopus which lives in the ocean composed of, you know, all soft tissue. But when it gets on land, it becomes hard uh, for that organism which was, you know, beautifully moving through the water to move on land. And, you know, a large reason for that is it doesn't have any structural support. So I, I, I don't think it should be limited to a system which is composed entirely out of soft materials. But I would say that there's, again, a lot of ways to make something soft. And I think that shouldn't be uh, excluded when you're thinking about either focusing just on soft materials or rigid materials that can be patterned or put into different geometries to enable that soft response. 
Mm-hmm. I think that's also interesting point about you highlight about morphology, about the shape and the structure. And I'm curious to ask you what do you think may be the important question you have to consider while designing uh, soft material? Or maybe what do you think missing pieces uh, already in the field? If we inspire something from the nature in, uh, in designing material, what do you think yeah. Yeah, this part about this part? Yeah, so I think when, when you look into nature, um, you know, there, there's certainly a number of creatures that really inspire me. Um, you know, when I was working on adhesion, we were really fascinated by the gecko. So, you know, the gecko has this amazing ability to stick to a wall uh, for extended periods of time, yet move rapidly, um, really uh, almost instantly. They're very dynamic. And I, I think the same can be said for, you know, something like an octopus, where for a long time I was a little hesitant uh, about the octopus, but when you really look at what they can do in terms of camouflage and sensing and actuation and essentially having onboard power and processing and also adhesion like the gecko, it, it's really quite inspiring. But, you know, one thing that we've always kind of approached this as is, you know, we like this concept of bio-inspired, um, which is similar to, but different from something which is biomimetic. So when you look at biomimicry, this is really when you, you try to take what you see in nature, make what you see, and then see how that performs. And, and that's led to you know, some really amazing materials and robots and, and all kinds of fascinating technology. But I think there's a lot of power in, in bio-inspiration where you know, one of the constraints that you have as you know, a creature out in the wild is that you, you're sort of stuck with what you've been given. And what I mean by that is when you look at something like a gecko, you know, they're covered in scales. So in order for the gecko to create adhesion, they had to start with scales. And that's in, in pretty stark contrast to what we can do in engineering and in science where we now have access to, you know, a huge range of materials, different chemistries, and all the different designs that we can we can leverage. And I think that provides a lot of opportunities where, you know, let's look at nature, see what it does. But if we can understand the underlying physics and mechanics, then that can be a very powerful driver to to create these bio-inspired systems. That's a great point. And maybe the shorter question here, do you think we fully understand the physics behind the material we're using? From your experience, do you think we understand them? I think that if you if you look at the physics of the materials that we're using, I, I think that generally we have a pretty good idea of the underlying physics. So if you if you think about something like electrical conductivity in, in soft materials, you know, we've we've come a long way with understanding the physics of how that can be done. And, and I would say the same for, for even some of the thermal properties and optical properties where there's just such uh, deeply developed physics that we can, we can leverage. But I, I will say what's probably one of the more interesting opportunities, I think, with soft materials and, and pushing the physics is that when we have our soft systems, one of the things that they can do is that they can deform, you know, very dramatically. 
And those dramatic deformations can lead to all kinds of rearrangements at, you know, submicron atomic scales, uh, even, you know, greater than, than micron scales. And I think there's a lot of, you know, interesting things that can be done um, when you do that. And this has been one of the themes that we've been looking at, which is this idea of if you can reconfigure the material's microstructure by deforming it, you know, can you use that as a mechanism to tune the physics? So that's, that's been something that we've been looking at um, from a thermal conductivity perspective in soft materials, which is that, you know, when some of the materials that we're using, again, with these liquid metal uh, droplets that we can embed into soft elastomers, when you stretch those materials, those droplets can go from, you know, a generally spherical shape to something which is highly elongated. And that change in the microstructure leads to this very interesting change and control that we now have of the thermal conductivity in those systems. So I think there is a lot of, you know, base physics that, that can guide us in how we do that. And then there's a lot of interesting, you know, material science and mechanics that we can use to leverage those physics to, you know, incorporate new functionalities and even enhance uh, functionalities that are already present in those systems. Mm -hmm. That's a very good point. Uh, maybe the question maybe he, we have in the community, why we have such system? Sometimes there's a trade-offs between the mechanical performance and the response time. So, for example, in AIBs, for example, ionic conductive polymers, sometimes that's trade-offs. And where do you think this kind of trade-offs come from? It comes from maybe we need uh, physics-based modeling or do you think which level of modeling can help us to maybe to close this gap or this trade-off? Yeah, I mean, I think in terms of, you know, the modeling that we need, I think there's really opportunities for really diverse sets of modelings from even, you know, small scale kind of molecular dynamics um, up to larger scale continuum mechanics approaches and also sort of the continuum models that we can use from thermodynamics. And I, I, I do think it's really important to understand, you know, the, the underlying physics of the system, because that gives you opportunities to, to design uh, in, in efficient as well as, uh, you know, very potentially useful ways. I, I think that if, if you don't understand uh, the response in your material system from a perspective of the, the underlying physics, then I think you can kind of go off in, in different trajectories that may not be the most efficient. And I do think that the ability to model materials, whether that's how they deform or how you can control them or how we need to you know, create them even or the, the physics of even manufacturing these systems, I think those are all incredibly important when we think about how we push this forward this field forward as a community. And, and that's where I think there's a lot of exciting things happening where, you know, people with different skill sets can come together and, and work on this really interdisciplinary field. So when I'm looking to your research interest, one of the things uh, I, I came across about adaptive material. Can you just tell us about what do you mean about adaptive material? Yeah, so I think what we're thinking about in terms of uh, adaptive material systems is you know, you can, you can start with a material that has some given function or some given shape.
but that function or shape, you know, may be useful in at, you know, time zero. But as you go forward in time and you enter different scenarios, it would be great for that same material to be able to adapt its shape or its properties to then function in a more efficient way. And, and the way that we think about this is, you know, creating uh, tunable properties and structures that we can then program different responses in based on their state. So, you know, I think one of the most obvious challenges here in soft robotics is that often we're looking for these significant deformations. So whether that's, you know, a large stretching deformation or the ability of a robot to, you know, conform around or mimic a complex shape, we want that material to start out soft. We want to be able to, to, to achieve these large deformations. But oftentimes, you know, once we're in some configuration, it would be ideal for that material to become load-bearing. So we'd have to go from a, a soft system to something which could be rigid. So that's, that's really, you know, one, I think, common theme uh, or a common example of, of adaptability would be in, in its stiffness. And again, I think if you can embed that into a material so that that can change either through the environmental condition. So maybe you want it to become stiff when it gets to a, a certain temperature uh, or you want it to become stiff when it gets to a certain location. That may require you to have, instead of just some kind of stimuli responsive material, potentially some kind of control where you have maybe a, a computation that goes on that decides it's time to change the material's property and then that property can be changed uh, on demand. Mm -hmm, great. So maybe I ask you what kind of maybe optimum material you're looking for is like viscoelastic material or elastic material. How you define maybe when you think about designing material? Because I think this question is related to whether we have to pursue new material or we have to use, for example, architected compliance where we maybe see relation between the morphology of the material and how we get new functionalities. So how do you see this approach of designing new material or exploiting what you have through architected compliance, for example? Yeah, so, you know, I think to go back to the first part of your question of, of what is an ideal material, I think that, you know, an ideal material is a material that can do the best that it can do in a given situation. And, but I, I would say that even a material, which again is at time zero and then at, you know, some greater time, that ideal performance might be different. So again, that's where I think the ability to, to tune whatever that function might be can be really advantageous because again, I, I kind of mentioned um, the idea of a gecko and, you know, that can be used for robots that can maybe climb and, and do all kinds of dynamic locomotion. And if you want that robot uh, to stick on a wall and climb up a wall, you want strong adhesion. But at the same time, if you want that to be a dynamic robot where it's, you know, climbing around the wall and moving rapidly, you actually want adhesion to be very low. And... And then the ability to switch from a high adhesion state to a low adhesion state becomes very critical. And in fact, you know, both of those materials are ideal, but only momentarily. And, and, and to kind of get to your second point, which I think is a really interesting idea is, you know, being able to use the material architecture 
So not, not always having to go back down and design at the molecular level and come up with new chemistries, but you know, how can you take uh, a, a material that maybe has a, a robust response for what you're looking for, but maybe doesn't have the right kind of compliance? The ability to then structure that system to maintain its original function, but then to incorporate this new kind of soft response it is a really powerful way to, uh, I think, push the field forward. Maybe the question here related, what is an area or direction of research you think is very promising, but the community seems to disagree or doesn't give much attention to it at the moment? Well, I think, you know, at least from, from my perspective, I know that, you know, you can't um, certainly do everything all at once. But, you know, one thing that I've, I've really thought a lot about is we've been able to do a lot of very interesting things with soft robots in a laboratory setting. And I think even some of the, um, you know, initial examples we saw where we could, you know, run over robots with cars, that really caught my attention because, you know, one of the, the big benefits here of soft materials is that they can be, you know, robust to getting run over or getting dropped off something high. And I have to imagine that, you know, as we take these soft systems out of the lab and, and really begin to use them in the real world, that they're going to become vulnerable to damage. So, you know, one approach that I think has been more common to, to accommodate that, and it's something that we've been interested in as well, which is, you know, self-healing materials. And I think people have looked at that, and there's been, you know, many great examples of that. I think at the same time, it's also important for us to be able to identify that damage. So how can we, you know, create materials that can be uh, able to detect damage? So in, instead of just self-healing, which again, it can be a promising avenue, but it doesn't necessarily tell us that something's happened. How can we develop systems that can identify that damage, send out a signal to tell us about it? And then I think the next step, which is, you know, the real challenging step would be, how can we then have a given response to a specific damage event? And, and to me, that's something that I think can really improve the robustness of, of soft robots, especially as they get out of the lab and, you know, kind of into the wild. And, and I think it's an area that, you know, people have started looking in more recently. And I think there's a lot of interesting opportunities there. In terms of um, detecting damage, I do think it's a lot of times going to be, you know, in some sort of sensing mechanism. And, you know, one of the challenges um, about this from my perspective is that I think we, we want to be able to positively identify damage. So, you know, one form of damage that would be severe would be, you know, maybe a hole gets punched in your robot or maybe part of it gets cut off. So I can imagine where if you had a sensor in there that, you know, turned off when it got cut, that could be a useful indication of damage. But at the same time, there's also a lot of different ways that your signal can just go away. And it doesn't necessarily have to be a result of damage. And that's where I think having materials and, and sensors that can positively identify damage. So instead of having a, a sensor that turns off, have a sensor that turns on. And 
to me, that's that's a pretty promising avenue where if you can have sensors that when damage is induced, they send some kind of signal out, then that would be a, a pretty efficient system. So we have done some work in this area. Um, this is in collaboration with Carmel Majidi and Eric Mark Vicka, where we were able to use these, again, liquid metal droplets dispersed in soft rubbers. And we, we took those materials, which are initially electrically insulating, and we put a, a soft sensing grid on top of that. And what we were able to do was, when damage was induced in this material, the liquid metal composite would become conductive because these liquid metal droplets would coalesce around that damage event. And then with, with the sensing layer we had, we could then use that new conductivity to essentially locate that damage in a 2D plane. So this was, I think, a good first step where we were able to have a electrical signal as an output that had a positive indication of damage that we could locate in a 2D plane. And, and that was pretty compelling for us because these materials were, were soft, they were made out of you know, silicone rubbers, they had the ability to be deformable and conformable to different kinds of surfaces. And, and that could be a kind of a you know, beginning point of almost in a robotic skin that could be able to sense damage at different locations and then report that damage to some sort of you know, processing unit. I think maybe there's a question also in the community about how we can embed sensors in, in the material. And sometimes we have examples like any conductive polymer can work simultaneously as a sensor and actuator at the same time. So how do you see this kind of integration sensors in, in the material so that you can detect any kind of maybe uh, scenario of maybe damages or maybe any kind of scenario expectance of robotics? How do you see this kind of integration for embodied intelligence in the material? Yeah, I think, I mean, that's a really promising avenue. I think if you can incorporate whether it's, you know, one sensor that can do multiple detection modes, or if it's multiple sensors that work together to enable multiple detection modes. I think, you know, having the ability to know the state of the system with these sensors is, is really important. And so that could be, you know, what is the, the current shape of the system? Or, you know, what is the current damage uh, scenario that the system may be under, or even, you know, what is what is it touching? Is is your material in contact with, with something? And and I think you know what's pretty interesting about that scenario is that when you're touching something, that can lead to a deformation in your material. And if you touch it potentially hard enough, or if it's an adverse surface, that can potentially result in damage in your system. So there there becomes this potential for convolution where, you know, you might be touching something uh, which leads to a deformation or the deformation might be induced by an actuator in the system. So I think, you know, the ability to, to reconcile the different kinds of deformations or contacts or damage events that we have is, is non-trivial. And I think it does you know, open up a lot of interesting questions about how many sensors do you need 
Should they be distributed in, in certain ways? And then how can they work together to tell you, you know, the, the full state of a system, which I think to this point has been um, lacking where, you know, maybe we combine one or two kinds of sensors together, but that doesn't necessarily, if you were to, you know, drop this robot in a dark box and, and have it perform different tasks, you may not actually know what it's doing um, with just one or two sensors. And how do you see the intelligence so far for smart material? If we speak about already the material that can actuate and descend at the same time, how do you see the potential behind this material? What limitation do you think uh, maybe we have to focus on? Yeah, so I think the potential of, of integrating, you know, sensing with actuation uh, is, is really important. And in terms of, you know, what we might need in terms of what might you know, be the kind of intelligence of that system. I think it kind of boils down to, you know, the ability to acquire that signal or, or response and then analyze it and then take those two together and then do something with it. So kind of deploy that knowledge. And, you know, to me, I think that with sensors, you know, we can acquire that. I think that we can also generally uh, deploy that, but in terms of you know having all soft matter systems that can analyze and and bridge the connection between acquiring and doing something i think that's kind of the missing link and and i think that's where a lot of you know very interesting questions emerge where you know one of the primary ones in my mind at least is you know do we want to build all of the analysis into the materials or can we take the sensors and the actuators and then couple that with, you know, modern computing and, and sensing. I think I'm curious to ask you this question as well, because that's a question we have in the podcast about, about the controller uh, for the smart material. And we have witnessed sometimes controller destroy the natural dynamics if you force the material to behave in certain behavior. And as a side, uh, some researcher don't agree with that. You think that you can maybe design modular controllers so that you can specify the significant uh, parts that you want to control. And uh, I think that's the concept we had with the, uh, when one of our guests to say that nonlinearity is in the material and the structure could be uh, uh, beneficial for the soft robot. And you don't have to need to use a controller. He, he, he doesn't think that controller is really, uh, yeah, it's just limita limiting the capability of soft robots. So he wants to say that that we can uh, maybe uh, explore more what could be the beneficial nonlinearities in the material and also the structure itself. But still yeah. the missing question is how we can access these nonlinearities because it's a question about how we can get rid of the non-desired uh, formation. And that's of course been the pattern on the, in the sensor. But the question here, how do you think about this question and how we can access this kind of beneficial nonlinearities, for example? Yeah. So, you know, the broad question, I think, you know, again, is, you know, do we want the materials to make the decisions or do we want some kind of controller or computation to make the decisions? And, you know, I can see benefits to both. I, to, in my mind, I think that, you know, that's still a, a good open question. I, I can imagine some scenarios where, you know, you, you can kind of hamper the dynamics of, of the materials if you try to control too hard. Um, but at the same time, you know, at least where we're at now, I don't think that we can build in all the different sorts of 
actuation or sensing scenarios uh, into the material itself without, um, I think, losing some opportunities. So in my mind, that's an open question. And in, in regards to the nonlinearities, I think that's, you know, something that is, is definitely present in these soft robots. And whether that's, you know, nonlinearities and the material properties. So, you know, at least when you're, you're sort of taught about, you know, material science or, or engineering mechanics, you know, we always deal with linear elasticity uh, early on. And, and that's, that's great. That's worked well for a lot of materials, especially metals and ceramics. But when you get into polymers and, and definitely when you get into elastomers, you know, the deformations are no longer small. And that leads to these, you know, large nonlinearities in the materials. And, and that, I think, um, is something that it certainly can, can be improved still where oftentimes, you know, we, we still assume kind of linear elastic responses, but there's definitely a lot more once these systems become highly deformed. And, you know, the, the kind of compounding problem with this too is that not only do the materials become nonlinear, but the structures can also become nonlinear. And, and I do think that that nonlinearity, whether that's like a, a buckling event in the structure or, or maybe even a snapping event, which can lead to kind of locomotion, I think there's a lot of you know, really great opportunities there because again, with the soft materials, we can actually you know, undergo these, these buckling deformations, but then because they're soft and reversible, they can actually go back to their kind of undeformed state. So that presents all kinds of interesting opportunities to, to incorporate nonlinearities into materials or into the structure to get you know, a very dynamic deformation or maybe even an, an amplification in the forces that we need. So it's, it's definitely something that you know, we're thinking about and I know the community is thinking about and I think there's a lot of, you know, great opportunities there. And maybe if I ask you about maybe misconceptions about robotics, maybe uh, maybe you speak about the field, uh, something you have witnessed with your beard, misconceptions about uh, developing new materials and the spectrum. Do you have any misconception you have heard about it or you at all? Any kind of this scenario happen? In terms of misconceptions, I would say that I haven't necessarily received this particular criticism myself yet, but I do think that, you know, soft robots is still a young and kind of emerging area. You know, I know that if you look back in history, there has been, you know, a couple different example, examples of some of the kind of foundational principles like the McKibben actuators or, or these kind of Whitney strain gauges, which were developed decades ago. Um, and then led to, you know, these soft actuations or soft sensing events. And, and then they kind of went away. And, and now, you know, soft robots is making kind of this, you know, surge back. So I think, you know, one, one misconception could be that it's, you know, it's only a young field um, with, with a young history. But I do think there's, there are examples of, you know, the types of things that we're doing uh, in, in the history of, of robots and materials. So I think that can be one, one misconception. And then the other one would, would maybe be because it is, it is new and it is emerging, 
and it hasn't been deployed at you know large scale yet in industry. I think that you know there can always be skepticism about you know the utility of these or you know what ultimately do we envision soft robots doing, and and to me I think that's kind of that the the hands of the researchers in this in this space where it's really our responsibility to help the field mature and to to make these um, you know I would say examples that we've shown and and get them into practical applications and out into other people's hands and I think that would be a a way to get buy-in and also to help solidify the field um, as something that can really change how we view robots. Yeah. So maybe that's related to that. What do you think may be the biggest technological roadblocks that could face off robotics in short term or longer term? What do you think may be the, the most technological roadblocks? So in terms of, you know, what is the most technological challenge that we're facing in the field. Um, I mean, I think, I think there's a lot of different challenges. And I think that, you know, one of them, from a, from a real practical perspective, and, and, and in a way to kind of propel the field forward is that, you know, I think the, the application that absolutely demands soft robots um, I think we still need to, I think, identify that in some ways. I think that there are a lot of applications that have emerged that can can be solved with soft robots or have the potential to be solved with soft robots. But I, I do think that if you want to, you know, mature the the technology that we're using in labs and and get it to the you know consumer industrial level, to me that's probably one of the greatest technological hurdles that we have, which is, you know, bringing what I would say are, you know, the, the kind of benchwork lab robots and then bringing that to the broader community, the, you know, consumers or, or different industrial applications. So that's not, you know, I'm not necessarily focusing on, on maybe one specific technology from sensing, actuation or controls, but I would say that, that what is a really large challenge of going from a bench to, you know, someone's kitchen. I think that's a, a big thing for us to tackle. Mm -hmm. I really like this point because I'm curious to ask you, where's this kind of maybe issue comes from? Why we don't, because sometimes ask a question whether we have to have the, a research based on technology driven or product driven. And you're right, but where does problem come from or this issue come from that this gap, how we can close this gap? Yeah, I think, um, you know, to close the gap, ultimately the, the research that gets done in a lab needs to be brought out to companies to eventually, you know, mature that particular technology and then bring that to market. And I think that there's, there definitely seems to be an emergence in this area uh, lately, where we're seeing some companies getting success uh, in terms of, you know, utilizing soft uh, kind of robotic technologies in at scale. Uh, I think there's a few examples of that that are becoming a little bit more prevalent. But, you know, 
there has to be that you know that particular group that's really interested in in bridging that and and I think there are and I think that you know as we continue to develop more and more compelling um soft robots or materials or sensing or actuation that can be useful to to people at scale I think that will just continue to allow you know, companies, whether that's startup companies or even small to large size companies, you know, buying into this technology uh, would be huge. And, and, and one thing I think that kind of happens is you, you sort of run into this scenario where, you know, sometimes you may have the, the kind of, you know, right material for the job, but you can't make it at scale. So even though there may be a market, that doesn't necessarily mean that there's a product to fulfill that market. And, and sometimes you actually need to have that product to allow that market to grow. And, and sometimes there's this kind of chicken and egg part. And, uh, and that, I think that can be a challenge, but, you know, certainly I'm not, uh, as, as well-versed in business as, uh, as some people, but to me, that seems to be one of the, the challenges where you either, you know, have to have it, so that you can grow that or get into that market or the market has to be there and then you essentially have to have the material ready. Do you have in your mind maybe a specific application this thing may be visible in uh, industry? We know that maybe the gripper, software gripper for fruit picking, that's example, but do you have any something in your mind that could be maybe have a potential as a product? Yeah. Uh, certainly the work they've done with the soft robotic gripping has been pretty inspiring. Um, I'm sure I'm not the only one who gets kind of, <laughs> you know, uh, just kind of in awe of those YouTube videos. Um, but I, you know, and then, you know, with my background in, in adhesion, I've always just been inspired by that ability to pick things up and then, and then drop them down. In, in terms of, you know, other areas where, you know, there might be initial kind of opportunities, it, it, it really does seem like, the the fact that you know humans have this soft skin and yeah we have you know a skeleton which is rigid to support that but the fact that you know we can take some of the technologies we've seen in soft robots and and make them compatible or very similar to human skin in terms of how they feel to me that that seems like a very good opportunity where you know like for rehabilitation, I know there's been some great work on that in terms of wearable robots. Um, and, and to me, that seems to be a space where there, there does appear to be a need and there does appear to be some pretty mature solutions. And, and maybe that's where we see, you know, some growth in this area in the near future. Mm -hmm. I think also, I don't know if you can comment both uh, uh, maybe smart textile I don't know if have you ever worked in, in this area uh, for smart textile uh, using AIBs or something like that? Well, in so maybe not necessarily smart textiles, but you know one of the <clears throat> one of the things that we did uh, when we looked at you know gecko adhesion and trying to get high capacity yet reversible easy release was we actually we found that fabrics like carbon fiber. We're actually a really promising way to do that, and it turns out that if you look at reversible adhesion as a whole, there there seems to be this 
this need to create large degrees of contact, yet be rigid in the direction of loading to get high forces. And of course, that's you know a conundrum, right? You need something to be soft and stiff simultaneously. And it turns out that you know fabrics actually can can do that in some ways. Where we took a soft rubber uh, that wasn't sticky or tacky, and then we impregnated that into the carbon fiber, and we made this composite material where it was very stiff. You know, when you pulled on it, so that was good for high adhesion. Yet the fabric itself has this ability to drape and contour to surface irregularities, which allowed us to really get large contact areas and get that soft elastomer very near to the interface. So, you know, I've always been a, a big fan of fabrics and their ability to be an engineering solution. And I think, you know, smart fabrics that, you know, could maybe actuate or sense is, is a really great way forward because, you know, fabric is, is a commodity at this point. And, you know, if we can bring in some of the technologies that are being developed and then incorporate those into fabrics, it seems like a, a very, you know, nice path to get, you know, wearable robots or wearable electronics because, of course, we wear fabric every day. Mm -hmm. I, I can't agree more with that. And I think one of the issues, for example, about encapsulation, because... I, there's some research about activating the fabric and you still have the issue how we can encapsulate system. I don't know if you can comment about the challenge on encapsulation in general, how, how we can design uh, encapsulation for such system like that. Um, so in terms of encapsulation, I think that becomes, you know, to me, one of the real challenges too in this field, which is that you know, for so long, when you look at robots or electronics that were rigid, you know, you could put that in a rigid box and then you could hand that to someone and they could take a hammer and hit that box, but the electronic inside was fine. Um, but because now we want, you know, these soft robots or soft electronics, we, we essentially have to remove that hard case and that traditional encapsulation that we had with those hard cases is now gone. And, and it definitely presents an interesting research challenge of, you know, how do you encapsulate something very robustly, yet not take away from the natural dynamics of the system that you had? And, and you know, I would say that, you know, one possible solution to this is, is to sort of use fabrics or or even traditional sewing and stitching as a solution to this problem because if you could you know weave in different components and and use you know traditional kind of sewing um you're already taking advantage of you know all the great advancements we've had through centuries of of combining different fabrics together and then hopefully still being able to leverage the different functionalities. So again, in fact, when we were working on the adhesion project to get these high capacity, easy release kind of gecko inspired systems, we actually did a, a fair amount of sewing. And that, that really allowed us to achieve some very important uh, functions for these adhesives. And I, I will never forget, you know, the sewing machine that we had to buy that was in the lab that we used to do that. And um, 
I'm certainly very grateful for the students we worked with who knew how to use the the sewing machine and really allowed us to, I think, make some nice advances in in incorporating kind of soft functionality into fabrics. And it is very interesting. So we're closing this end. I have three questions. The first one, was there any direction you thought would work out very well, but in Berkeley result proved something? Maybe you didn't expect this result and was interesting for you. I think that, you know, if I had to answer this honestly, you know, for everyone to hear, it probably would be with some of the work we had with uh, liquid metal, where we wanted to increase the thermal or electrical uh, conductivities of liquid metals like gallium and indium or e-gain. And, you know, the idea we had was, well, let's take particles that have higher thermal conductivity. So we took materials like copper, uh, which is, I think, about, you know, 20 times more conductive than e-gain. And, you know, what we found was that, yes, it, it could increase the thermal conductivity of the liquid metal. And, you know, there's been some great work that people have done doing that. But it didn't work the way that we had intended it when we embedded those droplets and those particles into a soft rubber, where it was important for us to maintain electrical insulation while increasing the thermal conductivity. So, you know, I, I will say this is where the, the modeling really comes in, which is, so we, we got some of these results and we were a little confused. And it turned out that, you know, when we went to the models and really understood the physics of what was happening, you know, it turns out that the results we were getting are actually the results that you should expect. So that was that was really interesting to us. And and I will say the other thing that came out of that that was unexpected was that, you know, materials like e-gain can actually react with different metals and form alloys and intermetallics. So it, it turns out that with copper, if you put something around 30 weight percent copper into a, a droplet of uh, e-gain, that you get enough reaction between those two that the liquid metal will actually turn completely solid. And there's no longer any liquid phase left. All you have left now are these kind of intermetallics that have formed. And again, that was something that we were able to investigate using some modeling, some thermodynamic and kinetic modeling that supported those results that we were seeing. So there was just all kinds of things within that project that we learned that we did not know at the onset. So we have this question from the audience all the time about how can we ensure a diversity of approaches that gets exposure they deserve and prevent an overinvestment in a limited set of techniques. And the question is about how we can, uh, how can we enable more inclusive culture around competitive ideas? Yeah, I think, I mean, that's really important because, you know, the first path you take or even the most popular path doesn't always turn out to be the best path. And it, I think it really is important in a, in a field like this to allow for, you know, different technologies to emerge and to be evaluated. So, you know, from my side, I, I definitely see the, the different opportunities that exist when, you know, you're allowed and able to explore things that maybe people didn't think about initially. 
And, and that can be, um, you know, a challenge, of course, where, you know, there may be some topics or ideas that are, have been promising. But of course, that doesn't mean that other ideas are less promising if they haven't been fully explored. So, you know, one thing I've always learned in, in research is to keep an open mind. And I always tell the, the students I work with that, you know, you can have the best plan in place, you know, day one for the experiments you want to do. But you may go into the lab and, you know, after your first step or two, it might completely change. So having, having that flexibility and, and open-mindedness to, to the things that you observe in the lab and, and maybe even in, you know, simulations and things like that can, can really lead to, you know, really powerful things. And, and of course, we've seen all kinds of, you know, interesting examples of sort of unexpected engineering results leading to revolutions and, uh, in, in technology. And I think that, you know, that is probably not going to go away. And I think there's a lot of reasons to keep your eyes open. I think that's also a good point because I think we have to be realistic in that case because first of all, what makes a good idea, genuinely good idea, how, how you decide that in the community. And the second one about the publishing and parish culture is the direction. And we discuss that frequently in the podcast. So how do you see as you, a scientist, you want to do like innovative research and you want to do, answer all the fundamental questions. At the same time, you pressurize it to, to get results and publish. I don't know what you're thought about this subject. Do you think, um, how do you deal with that, first of all? Yeah, you know, it's, it's definitely true that, you know, we do have to be productive um, and, and publish these results. And, and sometimes that does lead to pressures in terms of, you know, what we can pursue. But, you know, I think that, you know, one of the reasons I got into science and engineering was just kind of out of curiosity, you know, why does that happen or how did that happen or how can we make it happen differently? So, you know, for me, I think that I'm often uh, just driven by this, this curiosity to understand how things work. And then once you understand that, you can then make it work better. So, you know, from my mind, of course, we're driven by, by getting uh, results that can be published. But I, I also just am always so happy to, to learn and to, you know, see unexpected results and to continue to be curious. So I think you have to balance it. But, you know, ultimately, I got into this because I love it. And, and I don't want that to go away. So I, I'm always aware of that when we're looking at, you know, the work we're doing and, and making sure that at the end of the day, we can get good results, but still be, you know, driven by by curiosity and driven by you know the sort of engineering desire to make something better great and do you think ego is important for the researcher uh i think it's a double-edged sword so i think you have to have ego in the sense that you you do have to be willing to to stand up for the things that you're interested in and that you have passion for but that that same ego can be detrimental when you look at the sort of opportunities there are at the intersections of different fields and the potential for collaborations. So I've, I've certainly learned, you know, through, through my time, the, the value of looking at a problem through someone else's lens. 
And I've, I've been so uh, lucky in my time to work with people from you know, very different areas from me. And what I always try to do in those situations is, is really check the ego at the door and, and realize that you don't know about what they're doing as well as they do. And if you can keep that open mind and kind of keep that humility, I think you can really grow personally as a researcher and as an engineer. But I also think that you can really enable all kinds of you know, great projects and ideas that you would have otherwise missed out on if you weren't willing to, to open your eyes and, and really be uh, able to take in someone else's ideas. Mm-hmm. Great. And which book inspired you? So I, I think that, you know, there's been a lot of books that have inspired me through the years, but the one that I, I come back to because it, it, it's inspired me in a sense of how I like to, uh, you know, maybe think about teaching or how I like to communicate with my researchers, which is this book by J.E. Gordon called The New Science of Strong Materials or Why You Don't Fall Through the Floor. And I think this is one of, you know, the books that it has, has really inspired me because it's, it's really beautiful the way that it, it sort of weaves together this narrative of material science and, and mechanical engineering. And, and then it, it weaves it into the history of, of how this all came to be. And, um, you know, I often find myself uh, thinking about, you know, that this book both has the ability to communicate engineering and science. So you, you learn something when you, when you look through it and read it. But what it does at the, at the same time is I think it inspires you. And to me, if you can be inspired and you can learn, the, the, when those two things come together, it can, it can really lead to a powerful outcome. So that's, that's why I really enjoy that book. And lastly, uh, what does maybe the most important quality you have gained? And maybe also what was the best advice was given to you was a personal professionally and was a life changing. So in terms of, you know, something that I've really gained in in working in this field is is just looking at problems through other people's perspectives and and being able to to take what they know, combine it with what I know, and then develop something that neither of us could have done individually or, you know, maybe there's four or five people in that room that contribute to that to that growth. So that's something that I, I really enjoy. And that also builds the community and the kind of camaraderie that I also find to be very satisfying. And in terms of, you know, the best advice that, that I've had, I, I've been, I think, extraordinarily fortunate to have good mentors um, throughout my life, you know, just growing up as a kid from my family, but also in graduate school, I was in um, Al Crosby's group at UMass Amherst. And as a postdoc, I was in Carmel Majidi's lab at Carnegie Mellon. And, and both of those uh, people were just such fantastic mentors. And uh, I've been very fortunate. But I will say, you know, probably the, the advice that I was given that really sticks with me goes back to when I was a young child and I was with my dad and, uh, and maybe to bring this back to where we started, 
is that we were on a bike ride and on this bike ride, we had done it, you know, many times. And I was probably, you know, I don't know, five years old, six years old. And there is this hill and this was an otherwise, you know, pretty flat trail. And there's this hill. And most of the time I would pedal a little bit and then my dad would, you know, hold onto my handlebar and then pull me up the rest of the way. So that was the case until one day when we got to the bottom of the hill, I kind of got tired and I was waiting for that that handlebar grab to pull me up the rest of the way, but it never came. And um, so at that moment, I was kind of at the bottom of this hill and I was, you know, not sure how to get to the top. And I think that what that taught me was that, you know, I needed to get to the top. So I had to find a way to get there. And, you know, if you want something, I think that you you always have to come up with solutions and you have to be willing to work for those solutions to get the outcomes that you want. And, um, you know, I'll never forget uh, getting to the top of that hill that day and uh, and really realizing that much later in life that that was really a pretty impactful event. I would like to thank you for that. I think that's really a profound example. I think very wonderful example in our life. Yeah, that's that's really brilliant, Bowen. Thanks a lot for that. And sure, thank you. And do you have any final words to offer about the community you would like to say? Um, final words to the soft robotics community. Um, I would say that, you know, there's, there's so many great things going on right now, and I'm certainly very excited about the future and also just very happy to be involved in, in this research that I think is really going to be transformative. Thanks a lot for this enjoyable and thoughtful discussion. I really enjoyed it. Thanks a lot for time. Thank you. Great. Thank you.